Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 3rd of January. Um, today we have a really interesting episode. It is a lengthy interview with Nitya Raman, who is the city council member for District 4 in Los Angeles. Uh, I have been interested in Raman for uh, quite a while, uh, mostly because back when I was at the Times and writing my newsletter, I got interested in this redistricting issue that happened in the city of Los Angeles, where it seemed like um, some of the old school city council members or the old machine politics of Los Angeles were trying to edge out and elbow out this new progressive upstart who did not come from the same machine as they did. Um, and uh, the idea was to redraw her district, which was centered around, you know, she lives in Silver Lake, but it was from, which is, for people who don't know in LA, that's sort of a, I don't know how to describe it, is kind of like a yuppie-ish neighborhood. I think it's a fair way to put it in the, on the east side near Echo Park. Um, and it extended all the way out past Park La Brea, which I think at some point was the biggest apartment building complex in America. It might still be. And it went out through, uh, you know, sort of like in a sweep across the center of Los Angeles. The idea was to redraw her district so that the people who mostly had voted for her, which are people who are renters and people who are interested in rental protection, rental protection issues, which is a lot of what she ran on, uh, would no longer be in her district and that she would be facing uh, now voters in Sherman Oaks and in the Valley, which, as you know, um, maybe you don't know, but is the stronghold of NIMBY politics. In fact, it is the birthplace of the NIMBY movement in California in a lot of ways. So that was very interesting to me at the time. And uh, the reason why I was excited to have her on the show is because uh, not that in particular, but because she is rerunning, she is running again for city council here in 2024. And what I wanted to speak to her about was a the challenges around homelessness, right, which in California is the main political issue um, and is the way in which people's you know, I think a lot of the way in which they're thinking about or their profile politically gets determined is, you know, what have you done about the homelessness problem, which is a fair question. Um, and secondly, I wanted to speak to her about some of the long-going and long-standing trends and ideas and history of Los Angeles politics as well. Is there actually a way to do politics differently? Is there a way to do it in a way that does not reflect what was heard on the leaked tapes that scandalized all of Los Angeles, honestly scandalized a lot of the country in which members of the city council and labor leaders uh, who are mostly Latino were talking about black, Jewish, Korean, Armenian, basically uh, um, gay, like any any other type of, of constituency in the most just bigoted ways possible under this pretense that they were doing it to strengthen the voting power of of the sort of middle class Latinos that they represent, right? Like that would be, that was the way that LA politics has been always been done, at least for past however many decades. Is there actually a new way to do it? Um, I've always been interested in that question personally because it is the one of the places where you sort of think, okay, well, you know, for, as progressives as leftists, whatever, like this idea makes sense, but is it actually realistic? So here's my interview with Nitya Raman. We get into all that. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I hope you will too. Welcome to the show. Uh, if you could just introduce yourself real quickly to our audience, that'd be great. Yeah, I'm Nitya Raman. I'm the council member for the fourth district here in the city of Los Angeles, which uh, now after redistricting in 2021 goes from northern Silver Lake uh, through through to Reseda in the Valley. So it's a huge district. All the districts here are like 250, 260,000 people. And I'm the council member for it. Yeah, it's kind of like, I mean, it must be representing more people than some people do in Congress, right? Like in terms of some, there must be some parts of the American West, like Wyoming or North Dakota. It's, where people uh, I think this, pro there definitely are jurisdictions, I mean, like, uh, I think one of the things is that any single council district is larger than most cities in America. It's uh, larger than the city that Pete Buttigieg represented before he 
ran for president. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So are you running for president then? Is that by that's, that? By that that's line? my next, that's definitely my next step. <laughs> I wasn't born here, but never mind. Oh yeah, me neither. That's why I can't run for president ever either. Yeah. that That's the primary reason. That's yeah, the primary. yeah. It's <laughs> my primary roadblock. <laughs> um, but what you are running for is you're running for re-election in the council um, in this upcoming term for 2024. And you released this video that we'll link to in our show notes for the uh, and uh, for for your campaign. And one of the things that you said in it that really struck me was that you say that L.A. is struggling right now. Right. Like, um, you know, like, what do you mean by that? How is L.A. struggling right now? Well, to, so I'm an urban planner by training. So for me, a lot of what LA is struggling with has to do with land use issues. It's what I think about the most. And I do think it is the most important thing that LA is dealing with. Um, And the biggest problem in Los Angeles is decades of messed up land use policies that have led us to a housing crisis that is absolutely paralyzing the city in every way. It's led to our homelessness crisis. There is a direct line from our lack of housing to rising homelessness, but it also is changing Los Angeles. Los Angeles is one of the most unaffordable cities in America. People are leaving, not just LA, but the state of California, because this situation around bad land use policies is not unique to LA, but it's bad for LA when young people don't live here, anyone, when families can't afford to live here. I mean, it's it's just not, not a good situation that we're facing right now. Right. And- yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah. If you were to trace that back a little bit right now, I know that this is like there are books about this and everything like that, but the if you can give a short version of what the source of this land use problem is, right? Because I, I agree with you in terms of land use is the biggest problem in California, but when I explain that to people, sometimes they're just, they think it's like, well, is this, you know, commercial zoning or is it, you know, our agriculture? Like what does land use actually mean? Well, to me, I mean, I've been reading more about the history of L.A. Um, after a, you know, on my Christmas break, and uh, I was reminded so acutely of the fact that fighting against housing in L.A. was good politics for a very right. long time and honestly still continues to be, although not in the overarching ways that it was before. So, you know, there was a slow growth movement or an anti-housing movement that started kind of in parallel to the environmental movement. People wanted to save large patches of the Santa Monica Mountains or the coastal areas from egregious development, but that got lumped in with a desire to prevent new housing from being built pretty much anywhere in, in this region. And politicians who fought against growth were very successful. Marvin Browdy, who was a council member, Zev Yaroslavsky, who was a council member and then a supervisor, all of these people were elected and campaigned around platforms that really just pushed back against the construction of more housing in Los Angeles. And there were efforts um, that were called things like Not Yet New York and, <laughs> you know, like the Anti Manhattanization Project in LA. <laughs> That really just their entire uh, their entire goal was to not have more housing built in in L.A. And over the break, I was reading about Prop U, which was passed, I think, in 1986 or 1987. And it was a proposition that was put on the ballot by Marvin Browdy and Xavier Slavsky. And it basically said that along major boulevards and thoroughfares here in the city of Los Angeles, that the density levels would be cut by a half uh, in, in almost every major um, uh, boulevard here in Los Angeles. There were certain exemptions made for areas that had already been higher, but for right. the most part, everything was cut by a half. And research on that uh, now shows that that one effort, Prop U, led to 500,000 fewer housing units being built in the city of Los Angeles over the last few decades. And if you look at, for example, the new housing 
requirements that are being put on us by the state of California, what we're being asked to build here in the city of Los Angeles, what we need in terms of housing is almost exactly 500,000 units. Yeah, well, I wanted, you know, I was going to get to that later, but we might as well just talk about it now, which is that, you know, I think that the question of the political expediency or the political effectiveness of being anti-housing, um, it has its roots, obviously, back with, you know, Proposition 13 in California and the movement in the Valley, right, to stop growth, which in some ways was also a anti-integration movement to stop uh, schools in the Valley from integrating. But it was very, very powerful. And I think that one of the, at least for me, the most interesting part of California history is how much of it is just built off homeowner interest. Um, and then, like you said, it's sort of paired with this kind of, I don't know, uh, hippy dippy type of environmentalism where, you know, you go, you go for a hike in Griffith Park or something like that. And you're just like, imagine if this looked like Irvine or something like that, where all the houses look the same. And then people had this aesthetic response to sprawl. I do too. I have to admit, you know, I see it. And I'm just like, oh. <laughs> you know, sometimes you, you drive North of LA or something like that. And you see things that look exactly the same. There's like an aesthetic response that people have to it, especially I think, you know, like wealthy powerful liberal people might have that especially. But um, do you think that's on the wane at all? Because I, I, I find that like it's very interesting because where I live in Berkeley, obviously, it's sort of one of the hot spots of all this housing debate. And, um, you know, we have our Yimbies here and we have our, you know, sort of progressive Yimbies. We have every flavor of Yimby. And yet we still have a whole bunch of old people who are like, you know, <laughs> just like you cannot build anything anywhere. This is a sacred place. Right. Um, and so they still have a lot of power. I just wonder where you think that that balance of power has shifted at all. I think the balance of power is shifting, but it, I think that it's shifting in fits and starts. And I don't think it's easy to classify somebody like if you're a progressive, that doesn't necessarily mean you want to build more housing. Right. You know, and if you're conservative or if you're allied with business interests, that doesn't mean you are against housing. Sometimes it means you want to build a lot more, you know. So it, it's I think it's a hard thing to classify and to figure out where the support is or isn't. Um, and I guess I would just say that what has been happening at the local level here in LA is that I think greater participation in local elections has dulled the power of those who have been motivated to participate in local politics exclusively on an anti-housing agenda, yeah. right? Uh. The new voices that are playing in local politics, the new voters who turned out for my election or for some of the other elections that have happened now because elections at the local level are now ally, uh, aligned with federal elections. So there have been tons of new voters and then, you know, candidates that really have good GOTV operations like I did in my first campaign get a ton of new voters out. And I would say that housing is not the driving issue that has brought these people to the polls. It's other things um, like renters' rights which has played a major role at the ballot box over the past couple of cycles. But that's kind of dulled the power of the people who are voting exclusively to oppose new housing, right? So other interests have kind of made it more diffuse, but it is not clear to me that there is a strong pro-housing force at the ballot box yet. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I think you're right because... I do think it shifted a bit because I, I just remember I talked to the head of the he's now passed. But, you know, a few years ago, I think when I was writing about your redistricting thing, I talked to the head of the Sherman Oaks, the guy who had been the head of the Sherman Oaks Homeowners Association. Rich, Richard Close. Yeah. Yeah. And he was he explained to me how he did it. And, you know, where he was just like we would just go to grocery stores and we would sit outside and we would just hand out our blue pamphlets to everybody and then we would get everyone to go vote in these local elections and we would be the only people that showed up. And I was like, oh, my God, this man is yes. the greatest organizer of all time. He had yeah. so much power, you know, and it was he, just because he, he could bring people to those weird local elections over and over and over and over again. He understood it. But, yeah, I think now that, you know, elections are about more than just these small municipal 
issues. People might show up just because they hate Donald Trump, for example, right? That um, right. That it's because it's been diluted a little bit. Um, but I don't know. It's still hard when you look at that and you're just like, oh my god, this guy's a genius. How did he? How did he do this? You know? Yeah, and he did it for so long. You know, he did it for so long. So my district, when I first ran, was seen as a high voter turnout municipal seat, right. and the election that brought the incumbent into power that I eventually unseated, that election in the general election had 24,000 voters out of 180,000 registered voters right. in the district. And my election, 130,000 people voted. You know, so it was just like, it was a high voter turnout race for the context of local elections in Los Angeles in the past that had really been structured in a way that enabled somebody like Richard Close, who was very good at organizing a small number of very, very passionate people to show up. Uh, it was really structured to give him a lot of power, but that has changed. That has definitely changed. But the question is, has it changed in ways that are really focused on building more housing? I'm not so sure. Right. It's certainly been focused about you know, I think it's been focused around environmental issues. It's been focused around a lot around tenant protections and renters' rights. It's been focused, uh, and you know, p- potentially around the issue of homelessness, depending on how people think about it. But it it it's not necessarily a pro housing vote. But that's been some of the results of what has happened. The other thing I just want to say is that the vote, an election vote, is not the only moment when housing is being decided on. In fact, often it's not even the most important moment, right? So when projects are coming through our district, each of them goes through various processes at the city level. And these are still very much projects that generate opposition and very little support because most people don't pay attention to whether a project is built down the street from them or not. They, they're not, they're, they're much more focused on their own lives or families, whatever, but the people who don't want it there really get passionately mobilized around it. And so what ends up happening is that the framework of the small election ends up playing out over and over again at the project by project level. And so does it really result in, you know, widespread new housing? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, we have that. I mean, we play that out up here in Berkeley every single day um, where, you know, there's a lot of energy to build these big new projects. And then you go, you know, I think the people who are behind it, like the Yimby movement has gotten a lot better about showing up to these community meetings. But before it would be, I just remember this many years ago. I don't remember why now, but many years ago, I was writing a story about trying to, this development that was going in at the South Street south street seaport in new york city and um now that i think about it, i cannot remember why i was deciding to write this article but it sounds so boring in my head but i went to a community <laughs> meeting about it and there were hours of people lined up to oppose it you know because they thought it would block their view and i was like man this is really you know light kind of went on but that's that's a process that that has happened in california over and over again and uh it's kind of hard. And the, the reason why I wanted to bring it up because I had a question about it, which was just like, look, for homeowners, it's very easy, right? I, uh, and I think that even within your district, like I remember I was a homeowner in your district um, years ago. I owned a condo and uh, it was, you know, like my best interests obviously were for um, the value of that condo to go up. And abstractly, I could just think, well, if they build like a 60 person unit nearby, then there's going to be more traffic and my value will go down. Right. So it's a very, very simple calculation. Um, You know, for homeowners in your district, how do you sort of make the argument that more housing is in their best interest? Well, one of the interesting things about this particular moment is that um, the way in which legislation, the most effective legislation, both at the state level and at the local level that's moving forward related to housing, is not about making that argument at the project by project level. Right. Because I think at the project by project level, that argument is very hard to make. Uh, People have an emotional attachment to how their neighborhood looks and feels. And so if you're trying to engage with them on 
one particular project it to try and argue for change it's just a tough conversation to have pe- with people and i completely understand that because I, you know i live in i live in silver lake it's beautiful it's gorgeous you know and there i live in a neighborhood which has mixed you know not in my, on my particular street but in this area there are apartments and single family homes near one another but I can see if there was a huge building, you know, planned for Hyperion where you used to live, right. that it would generate a lot of opposition here. And um, I, you know, I, 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 I kind of instinctively, I understand that. I think the way in which you move away from that particular very emotionally charged and painful conversation is really to think about how you can create regulations that move away from project by project discretionary approvals overall and go towards a set of building standards along corridors or in cities that allow certain kinds of housing to be built by right that don't have to get a a project by project approval from your local elected representative or from the planning commission or whatever it is. Um, you just create rules that create the kind of housing that the city needs. And I think that conversation is a very fruitful conversation to have because you talk about, you can talk to people about the lack of housing. You can talk to people about housing costs. You can talk to people about the research that shows a direct line between the lack of housing in a city and rising homelessness. And all of that makes sense for people in the same way that, um, feeling strongly about their own neighborhood makes sense for people, and so I think it's a much easier and much and a much better conversation to be having. Frankly, okay. Well, let let's talk about homelessness then, because you know it's something that I've written about quite a bit. I know that you think about a lot, right? You got your really. Your, it seems like you're the chair of the city council's housing and homelessness committee, and you also kind of got your start in politics. It seems like at least if what I read was correct, for, through a volunteer organization that dealt with homelessness. Um, And so what I wanted to ask you about was that, you know, when I talk to people here up in the Bay Area who are not journalists or not involved in politics, that they're general, basically like my friends from high school, honestly, who moved out here, um, they talk about it with a lot of hopelessness, right? Like they just think that it's never going to be solved. Uh, They see, these are compassionate people. They see the encampments they don't think these people should go to jail you know um but they think that this problem is not going to get solved at any point during their lifetime right and that you know a lot of these people have lived in the bay area a long time and they've seen the problem get worse like i mean i've lived i lived in the bay area from i lived in san francisco from 2005 to like 2011 something like that and you know when i came back in 2019 i was i was I, I just admit I was shocked. I was just like, wow, it's gotten so much worse. Um, how do you deal with that sense from your constituents or, you know, from people in LA in general? Cause I know that this is not like a Bay area specific feeling, right? I have friends in LA who are also just, they go through skid row. It's tough. You know, it's tough to see what's, what, what's down there. And they just think it's hopeless because, you know, they feel like they, they're not seeing any change. How, how do you combat that kind of hopelessness? Well, one of the ways in which we've tried to combat that homelessness is actually by changing a little bit of the approach on homelessness in LA um, in my district. So uh, one thing is that, you know, when I when I got started in this role, there was no one in City Hall in any council office that had, I believe, the word homelessness in their title uh, or as part of their, you know, they nobody focused on this issue. Uh, in any council office. And based on my work in the <clears throat> in the volunteer group, I felt like this is an issue that that would respond to work. That if you were able to provide focused support to individuals and provide them a place to go to, that you could actually get people off the street, but that the city just wasn't doing that. Right. And the county wasn't doing that. The system wasn't designed to do that. And so one thing that we did was that in our district, we built out a team. We have a four-person team that's working on homelessness. It's the largest team in City Hall on the issue, even though our district has nowhere near the largest number of homeless people in the, in the city. Um, and we 
generate more beds. We find more shelter opportunities. We get motel and hotel vouchers. We convert hotels. We we work to make more shelter available. And then we work with people who are in encampments and help move them indoors with our network of service providers. But the one change that we made to the process that has actually been impactful for exactly this feeling of hopelessness that you're talking about is that in the past, the way that housing people from an encampment went was that you had a system that would uh, was not focused on a particular location. So people would move. Um, for many years, there was an emphasis on moving people indoors, but because the number of um, <clears throat> Basically, people wanted to move folks from an encampment directly into permanent housing um, through this housing first approach, right? And the way that the queue for that was set up, the line was set up for that, was that people who had certain kinds of um, uh, certain levels of acuity or kind of who were the sickest got to go indoors first. And so... when you have a system in Lo- like in Los Angeles where you have so few housing units for people to go to, the number of people moving off the streets into those housing units was so few that you, even if you were funding many, many more outreach workers and many, many more housing units, and the encampment near your home would never change. Right. Because maybe one person would move indoors from that encampment and everyone else would still be there and maybe they would be replaced by another individual who moved in, Right. And so what we've done in our district is to try and increase the number of shelter beds, not necessarily permanent housing units, because that follows a different process, and work on encampments, one encampment at a time, rather than a single person at a time. And so this, this effort, which is, you know, we, we call it encampment to home, Mayor Bass has branded it inside safe. Um, it's really about, uh, it, the head of LASA calls it encampment resolution, it's really about taking every single person at one site and getting them indoors at one go. And it is also effective because sometimes when people are living in a particular place, there's a sense of community that develops. And so when one person goes indoors, they can come back and tell others, it's a nice place. Come, let's all move indoors together. If they can all go indoors together, it ends up being a more effective effort uh, overall. And, but what you what the result is, is that you actually see change, that encampment is gone, not because you shoved it down the street or because you forced people to move to another neighborhood, right, but right. because you actually got people off the streets. And so that that change is a is a one that I think can restore faith in a very, very uh, hopeless system overall. And so I hope that we've been able to do that, at least to some extent. It's hard because the boundaries of every district are really jagged. So it's hard to say, well, that's not my district. This is my district. Um, Because people look at homelessness across the city overall, and they don't know whether we can make progress or not. But I I do think that kind of focused effort that can show results is not just a way of effectively getting people indoors. It's also a way of restoring people's trust and faith that the government can actually do something. Yeah, I I think that's right. I mean, they cleared one encampment, uh, you know, where I live in people really talked about it a lot. You know, they're like, oh, I drove by and it's gone. And those people moved into a Project Rimkey site that was built by the city. Um, and, uh, you know, they're all there. You know, they have a place to stay. They have a bathroom and they have, you know, a locking door. One of the questions that I had was, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people who are uh, unhoused people. And one of the things that they said is that I hear all the time is just about, the problems with congregate shelters, right? And that um, that they're okay with living in like tiny homes, for example, right? At first right. I was somewhat skeptical about these tiny homes, but once you talk to people, almost everybody's like, yeah, I would go in one, you know? Um, yeah. I think any place that offers a little privacy, right? a, a room with a door, even if it's a tiny room, right? I right. think is still a place that feels appealing, but like a huge room with 50 cubicles or whatever just feels less less so and i i think again instinctively i i understand that yeah yeah i, I think the you know so is there is that then part of the approach then to trying to maybe change the way that the shelter system 
you know, because I don't think that anyone believes that you can't have, you know, you can get rid of all temporary shelter, right? Um, because there's just never going to, it's just so hard to secure housing. I mean, you know, people I've spoken to who work on the service provider side, they're, some of their jobs are to like go on Craigslist, for example, right? And just endlessly talk to landlords, trying to find like one unit for one person, right? For a permanent yes. supportive housing. It's just an endless, thankless job. These people are not getting paid. Sometimes they're volunteers, but, you know, even when they're not, they're not getting paid very much. And, you know, they just have to go and negotiate constantly for this. It takes forever. Um, yep. And uh, is, is there some thought to sort of change the way that the shelter system looks then over the, is that, is that what's behind like these initiatives to build more tiny houses in LA and to try and, and, you know, project room key, all this sort of stuff? Yeah, I think project room key, which was a COVID uh, related intervention to move people, as many people off the streets to protect them from COVID as possible, actually showed us that having non-congregate shelter options would be very, very impactful in moving people off the streets quickly and safely. Um, and the city of Los Angeles historically has not, first of all, has not invested in shelter that much at all, uh, has historically had a very low percentage of shelter beds relative to its overall homeless population. But when it did invest in shelter, like under the Bridge Home effort under Mayor Garcetti, invested in congregate shelter. And I think RoomKey really changed that approach and showed how much better non-congregate shelter was. And so that's what that's what a lot of the efforts going forward have been. And I think, I, I believe, based on my understanding and experience working with people who are experiencing homelessness, I do think shelter is always going to be a necessary part of the system. I don't think we're necessarily going to have a shelter bed for every unhoused person. Like that's not necessarily the proportion that we're going to need to have in LA, but I think we're going to need to have a lot more shelter beds available for people as long as the housing market to match a voucher or to find a right. build a permanent supportive housing unit is as tight as it is. Um, I, you know, there's this dichotomy right now that's emerged and I, you know, I actually think that part of it is, I walk by this guy's house like once a week because he's lives in my neighborhood when I'm occasionally walking my dog. But there's this, you know, there's a dichotomy between housing and drugs and mental health, right? Um, and it's something that was created. You know, Michael Schellenberger's person I'm talking to is somebody who really pushes this. And it feels, to me at least, it's always felt pretty pernicious and almost abstract, right? Um because it's basically putting a saying you have to believe in one or the other. And it's just, it's just an odd way to think about it. But, you know, I think recently some of that hard edge, because there's a period where, you know, he was running for governor and San Francisco was like a best-selling book. And a lot of the discourse had gone that way. I think some of that has dulled a little bit from where it was even like a year ago. I don't think that people are as angry as they were. But, you know, there's still a demonization of the homeless that, that deserves me at least, right? That, um, that, you know, you'd see it in some of the initiatives get, that get rolled out. You see it in some of the discourse that comes out of mayor's office in San Francisco, right? Like we have to get real with these people, right? Like we have to, um, and that, I, I think that there's a way sometimes on the left where people, hand wave that away a little bit too much, right? Where they say, oh, none of these people, you know, the number of people who have drug problems on the street is low, right? Like, I mean, I don't think that's not true at all. And all the studies, a big study that was done by UCSF showed that that was nowhere close to true. Many of these people have drug problems. Many of them have mental health problems. Like, what do you think is a way that, you know, this sort of weird split can be solved, right? Where you can think about this and compassionately while also acknowledging that these are real problems within this population. Um, and that, you know, that doesn't mean that every single person should be institutionalized immediately or put in jail. But, um, but that saying that it's not real is also like, to me, it's just like, sometimes it just makes me crazy reading, <laughs> reading it. You know? just well, like, it, it feels like, I mean, as someone who, again, has worked closely on this issue for a long time, has met a lot of people who are living on the streets. It Sometimes when I hear people who deny that there is mental health issues or that there are drug abuse issues, it's 
it feels like you're being gaslit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I don't think it is an effective way of bringing people together. To me, the fundamental response to that is really that acknowledging that mental health issues exist or that substance abuse issues exist, it doesn't mean that we have to throw away our compassion. Like, And that's just not how California rolls to me. When you look around and you see the, the state's response to these issues overall, it just feels like we can carry both of those together very effectively. Um, and we just have to design a system that really works to respond to all of the issues that people are facing. That's not what we have right now. I think part of the challenge with this debate is that it's being the Michael Schellenberger side of it, uh, or maybe not him specifically, but overall that, that, that camp presents it as the reason why we have people with mental illness living on the streets is because we're not forcing them to go indoors to mental health institutions. And from my experience here in Los Angeles, we don't have a mental health system for them to go into. Like that doesn't exist. The number of beds is scarce. The number of mental health service providers is very limited, although it's slowly growing. When I have somebody who has mental illness, who is living on the streets, I can't get help for that person that's specialized for their issue. It's, it's nearly impossible. It's getting slightly easier as time goes on, but it's very, very tough. And so for me, it's like, let's build that system out. Let's, let's hold the government accountable for building that out. And here in, this, in, in LA, the county is responsible for that. So I'm always talking to our county supervisors or to the leadership at the Department of Mental Health and asking them about specific individuals, but also talking about broader policies that can make more beds available, that can, that can actually get service providers who have mental health training on the streets, which we just, we just don't have that right now in any way, shape or form. So I think part of the anger around this is that overall the system feels like it's failing, right? That's right. what you were saying before. And so you know, we, we've put in more money for shelter beds, we've put in more money for outreach workers, but still the problem doesn't seem to be decreasing. And so I think people who are angry about this and who really want to say it's not housing, it's mental health and substance abuse are just trying to find a solution the same way we all are for this issue. But the reality is that it's all of it and we have to figure out a system that really works for all of it. Uh, the my one point of like despair about this, right, which is that you know I think that what you're saying is accurate, and you know we had a big example up here where London Breed was saying um, we're going to cut off you know service, we're going to cut off cash help for people who refuse to who are mentally ill but refuse to go into mental health services or whatever, right? And then there was a lot of reporting done that showed that whatever mental health services exist in the county city of San Francisco are so overbooked and actually people can't get in. Right. And so That's like, right. it was like, this. That's right. like basically it's a fantasy that she's saying, which is like, exactly. Oh, the, the space is there. You're just not going you're like, no, the space isn't there. Now the solution to that obviously would be to build more space. But that's like the part where I despair about it is I'm just like, man, that is a really hard job. You know, like being a yeah. person who is a mental health counselor for people who are homeless is a job that is thankless. It is low paid and it is difficult. You kind of need a master's degree in social work, which is also wildly expensive for reasons I will never understand. But, you know, um, that it's going to be very hard to scale that up right across California when people are like, just build more and just like, okay, well, you need people to do this, right? Um, and those people don't exist right now. There's a shortage. People don't want it. This is why at some point when I was working at the New York Times, I just made this argument that we should have like a conscripted national <laughs> service for, for young people like, in California. Just like, just make, you know, like, let's just do conscripted national service. I don't know. Like, you know, like we need people to work in these places. Maybe it'll show them some compassion and people won't end up just being these disconnected weirdos that, you know, end up screaming all day about like the president of Harvard all day, you know, maybe they'll actually get some, maybe they'll get some reality, you know, and in the world, they'll understand that there are bigger problems than that. But uh, yeah, like, how do you, how do you build that out? Cause that's the, that's the one part of it I don't quite get. 
Um, That is a very tough question. And I will say it's for me, just like for you, it's a theoretical question because that's not under my purview at the city of LA. Um, I will say that I think the same principles that we can use for trying to build out other parts of the system can be utilized for that as well, right? So that would mean something like consistency of work. A lot of contracts around these issues are a year long as opposed to being able to take a job and know that you'll have that job for two to three years. Um, I just introduced um, uh, an effort to look at the city of Los Angeles and how we can incorporate regular cost of living increases into our contracts for homeless service providers because we don't have that right now. And so if you start this job, you want to know that you're going to get a raise at some point and that the money that you're getting from the city or the county is going to allow you to get that raise. And so I think there's ways to build out the system that allows for it to feel stable, that allows for it to feel like it can be a productive job. But I I, I think you're right about this despair a little bit, right? So I think a lot of what has happened both within my own district with the work that we've been doing and overall Uh, the efforts that Los Angeles has been making to try and put people into motel and hotel rooms and to try and find more non-congregate shelter options is that we are hitting the walls of that system already. And we are maxing out on the availability of already built spaces that we can lease or purchase. Um, We're maxing out on the number of professionals who are able to do this work. We had money for a multidisciplinary team that we had secured from the city budget and had to move that to another spending bracket because we couldn't hire for those roles. Yeah. You know, so it's, it, we are already in many ways up against the wall in terms of how, if how much capacity the system has. And so now what we're doing, I think is two things in parallel, which is, trying to make our existing spending more efficient, more effective. So doing more with the existing capacity that you have, while in parallel, you're trying to build more capacity. And both of these are not overnight solutions. Both of these are going to take a long time. And so I think it is going to be a a situation where people have to have patience. This is a huge problem and we have to build a system to respond to it. And we're just nowhere near having that system in place yet. But I do think we can do it. Yeah, the will is there. I mean, I, that's the one thing that I kind of come back to all the time with this thing, which is like people are like, oh, they just need to spend more money. And I'm just like, no, there's a lot of money spent. <laughs> you know? Like, or people don't care. Like, no, actually, it's literally the only thing that people care about. Um, yeah. And then you just think, okay, well, at some point, as long as we don't have, you know, charlatans coming down and trying to like spy on, I don't know, compassionate use clinics or whatever, then we, you know, like it can get done. Um, all right. Uh, the the thing, la- well, go ahead. Well, so I just want to say the thing that I worry about though, is that, you know, I think you have written about the history of California and, and a lot of issues in cities. The problem that we're facing right now, the situation that we're in right now is a situation that has been decades in the making. Decades. Decades of underbuilding, decades of underinvestment in our mental health institutions, decades of underinvestment in shelter and housing for people who are experiencing homelessness. And I think that what I fear happening and what I see happening in little pockets is that people are not comfortable with how long it's going to take for us to be able to actually move in a positive direction. People are feeling that impatience. And that's a moment when I think you can, it's really ripe for people to just get pulled in the wrong direction again. Like we've tried, we've tried services. Let's go back to jail. Yeah. You know, know, and so that, that, that's, that's the thing that I fear happening. And so that's the reason I want to go out there and tell people, more and more about how much work it's going to take and how much focused effort it's going to take. And the fact that we in LA just got started a few years ago on that, you know, just with Prop HHH and Measure H, which was passed in 2016 and 2017 and really got started 
the year after that. Like, that's it. That's all the time we've had with this new effort. That's not very much time at all. And, yeah, yeah. You know, I just think it's it's. I, I just want to make sure people understand that this is not an overnight process, and it's going to take a while. I I I I think that people will get impatient, but I also just think that, like, basically, if you have this, every we in the press, and I I've fallen for this too. We get sometimes a bit in a tizzy about this upcoming reactionary politics, right? That uh, the Democrats have lost the plot and, or the progressive has lost the plot. And, um, and then they just keep winning elections, right? Like uh, Rick Caruso didn't, is not the mayor of Los Angeles, right? Um, Here in San Francisco, we have London Breed, but you know, she wasn't this hard edged on homelessness at the beginning. And the reason why she's doing it is because she's going to be the person running against her is like the heir to the Levi Strauss fortune or something like that. And he's going to run to her right on homelessness. Right. And so she feels like she needs to tack to the right. Like, but um, if I saw like a big slate of kind of reactionary people talking about jailing homelessness, people being elected, then I think that I would worry about it a little bit more, but the election results are always kind of show that people in California are still pretty progressive, uh, at least in the cities. Right. And, um, even in places that do have large proportional homelessness problems, like, I don't know, like Chico, California or something like that, you know, like they tend to vote for, for pretty housing friendly things. Um, the last yeah, thing, maybe, I mean, I, yeah, maybe I think the, the, uh, DA recall in San Francisco, I mean, there's just, there's yes, broadly speaking, I think you're right. Right. But who who knows? And I think there's always election results that pop up that that push back against that narrative. And so I think for me, especially as someone looking at an election in a very, very different district from the one that I initially ran in, um, I've gotten to know this district very well, but it's still a question mark. Like, yeah, you might be that- right. My, my problem with general things is that I basically think nothing ever changes, you know, and uh, that everything's going to be fine. And uh, I've been very wrong about a lot of things because of that, you know, including like, uh, for example, the pandemic, where I was like, yeah, I don't know, you know, is it really going to happen? <laughs> so I might oh, be God. wrong. I, look, I changed my thinking very quickly, but at the beginning I was like, oh right. man, you know, the world never changes, right? But, you know, obviously the last four years or something has completely disabused me of that. And I've had to rethink my, my general, like, <laughs> I don't know. California, California progressives are always just going to be progressive. Um, and these these reactionaries are just like eight dudes on Twitter. But I don't know, maybe that's not true. Um, the last thing I want to ask you about was, uh, you know, just Los Angeles politics. And, um, you know, L.A. is a city that's historically divided by it in its politics by identity. Right. I'm not talking about like identity politics in the modern sense, but more that there are pockets of the city that elect city council people and representatives who are thought to look after their interests. And generally those are organized by ethnicity, right? So you have Koreatown, you have Glendale, you have uh, different sort of ethnic pockets. And you saw that with this uh, huge scandal, right? With Nuri Martinez and, and the city council, the leak tapes in which they are sort of talking about things in a very frank racist type of way. Um, but what they were discussing at its core is how they maintain power for what they believed was like the interests of middle class Latino voters, I think is a fair way to say it, right? The people and themselves, right? Obviously, but but that they felt like this was the way to do it and that they were talking about things in this way in which, you know, we are we're the Latino part, right? We need this is how we interact with the black part. This is how we interact with the Korean part. This is how we interact with the Jewish part. Like there's, there's just a lot of talk that, that was shocking and how reductive and racist it was. Um, but my question to you is like, you know, like, is there, do you think there's an alternative? I, I mean, first of all, do you even agree with that sort of vision of LA politics? And secondly, do you think that there's an alternative to that? Um, uh, so I had a, a slightly different reading of the tapes, okay. which was that that that's the language they use. Okay, horrifying racist and homophobic language aside, the way they talked about electoral politics was about servicing a certain kind of 
um, community that they felt like they were the true representatives of. But in reality, to me, it was like self-serving language. It was, it was not good. It was not a good faith description of what they were even doing in that room. Right. Like they were, they were talking about, for example, trying to prevent a, a Latino man, Hugo Soto Martinez, from challenging a white incumbent um, in in one of the districts and trying to protect it for that that incumbent. Right. So it wasn't even that they were necessarily saying we are really going to elect more Latinos in LA, a city that is majority Latino. Um, it was really about how do we support our own power? How do we support our incumbency? And how do we support the incumbency of our allies? And so I think they wanted to talk about it in that way. Okay. And they used the language of, of, you know, of what you what you talked about, but it, it was not an, you know, it, it wasn't even an accurate description of what they were doing in that room. And so I would say that politics in Los Angeles has, has, has often been about um, getting your constituencies to come out and vote. And, um, I think what we are seeing now is a pushback against the way that that politics has happened historically because of the change in election timings, because because of the larger number of voters, those easy categories of people who you knew would support a certain kind of elected representative, they don't, their power at the polls has decreased. And, and so I think there is an option or there is a, 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 a kind of a new kind of politics emerging, but what shape that politics is going to take is still to be determined. Okay. Yeah. Cause that's what I was going to ask you about because it was, you know, I think about, I've thought about it a lot and I don't know, I guess maybe I should move to LA because I th- find myself thinking about LA politics way more than Bay area politics. But, um, you know, I think it's more interesting here. Oh yeah. So. It's way more. I mean, it's not <laughs> even close. I mean, Bay area politics is just, you know, it's, uh, right now is just homelessness and whether you are going to have an apartment building next to your house, which is, you know, important, but it's not, it's not sort of the, uh, it's not, it's not as big and it's not as lurid, I guess, as LA politics are. But the, you know, I think about, cause I, you know, you ran on, for example, in your last election, you ran on an idea that you would be appealing to renters, right? Um, that's an interesting way to sort of yeah. build an identity group is to say renters, right? Um, like Ugo, like base ran on a similar type of thing where he talked about labor a lot, right? Where he was not going to just be, uh, just talk about identity. Um, Aonisis Hernandez r- ran on basically a pretty left platform, right, that was not just appealing to a certain type of identity, like this is our Los Angeles, and then something in Spanish, right? Like that would be, uh, that would be a way for her to run her campaign. But she ran it more on sort of left housing principles, I think, renters rights, tenant, uh, gentrification, those types of ideas. She, she talked a lot about policing, too. And police, that was a big right, part. right. Yeah, that was that was her big, you know, um, that, yeah. felt, that felt different. And I think that one of the things that came out of that leaked tape scandal was this idea and it was one that I thought about a lot which is whether or not the character of Los Angeles politics could change right could we stop this kind of like almost like balkanized racial war that happens in LA politics for many many years right which I I think is a fair way to put it right um and could it change and I I and could there be something else but I don't know. I don't know if that's, you know, I don't know how I feel about it because I just think, man, it would be cool if it could, you know, but I don't know, man. Like, you know, people, I think about all my, my entire family, uh, mom's side of the family grew up in Koreatown, you know, and um, I think about them a lot and I'm just like, there is no way that they care about anything except for the only thing they voted for. This is, I don't know if I'm being unfair to them, but as far as I can tell, the one thing they showed up in line to vote for was when they were going to change the name of 
Koreatown to Koreatown slash Little Bangladesh or uh, Little Bangladesh, I think is what they're going to do. They showed up for that, you know. Right. <laughs> but, but like, they're not gonna they're not gonna vote against anything that they feel is not like Korean interests, and it doesn't matter what well, that is if it's I won, in that way. I, you did win that I district, won, right? <laughs> I did. I won that area. Right. First of all, you know, and and the other thing I want to say is I want to tell you a personal story, which is. I was at a polling place in Koreatown the day of uh, the general election, and there were two older Korean women there. And I went up to them and I introduced myself and I was like, hey, I'm Nithya. I'm running for this council seat. And they both said to me, they were like, oh, yeah, your mom called us. Don't worry. We got you. (laughs) 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 Maybe maybe that's what it takes. Is is, uh, Is my mom calling? (laughs) My mom phone picking. (laughs) But I... I think I think what you're describing overall, and I would say it's not limited to just those, you know, our races. Yes, I did talk about renters' rights. I talked about renters' rights, and I talked about a, a different response to homelessness. Those right. were the issues that kind of propelled my election forward. Um, and I think what you're discussing is a difference between a campaign that's run on ideas and actual policy platforms. Versus a campaign that is designed around a political machine getting its constituencies out to the polls. And I do think there is a possibility to do that here in the city of Los Angeles. It just takes an incredible amount of work. And it also takes, um, I think, the right kind of political environment. Like you have to have, and it can go both ways. I don't think this is necessarily just a progressive pathway to winning. I think this is also something that could be very well channeled like it was in Council District 11 around a very different response to um, homelessness and crime and a focus on those issues as well. So uh, what we are moving towards, I think, in in some parts of Los Angeles um, is elections that where issues are really being debated and discussed at the polls. And I think that is really exciting. I think the question mark that I have is not whether our political discourse is changing or whether a new kind of politics is possible. The question I have is what will be the outcome of those discussions? Like what is the way in which we will think about housing in Los Angeles? What is the way in which most Angelinos want to respond to the issue of homelessness? What is the way in which we actually do want to respond to public safety issues and crime. And I think those questions are really open questions. And that to me is going to be the things that define the future of Los Angeles. Yeah. It's uh, the, the reconfiguration I think will happen just because, you know, of what you said, the election year change and everything like that. It's just, uh, I, I, I hope so. I, 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 I don't, I, I think it was interesting to me because those it was so those tapes basically laid bare what politics is, you know, at a very core and fundamental level. And I just wonder how much effect it had, right? Um overall. But uh I don't know. It was for a journalist, I will just say it was like I did, look, it's it's not a happy thing when elected officials are saying awful bigoted things, but I was just like, oh my God. <laughs> Like, you know, this is just so, like, they're just saying it, you know, everything that we thought was happening, they're just saying it. And um, it was, you know, it's been interesting to, to think if those types of moments can become watershed moments or not. And I guess we will, we will still see, but. Um, we we will uh, still see, but, you know, I do want to say one of the people on those tapes was not reelected. Right, right. Uh, one of the people who was discussed on those tapes was also not reelected. Um and so the politics that they represent, I think, is changing. But the ways in which it is changing are not clear. And I don't think it's changing all over the city. I think in yeah. certain parts of the city, it's very much an old school kind of politics. And I think that change will take time uh, in those neighborhoods. So I think, I think we'll see. I think we'll see what happens. And thank you for listening to the show. Uh, if you would like to get in touch with us, it's time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. Uh, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter at TTSG pod. 
As always, if you'd like to contribute and support the show, it's $5 a month at goodbye.substack.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash TTSGpod. Thank you so much.